down Are they gonna bail you out Or just run you around They said you should have a house The American way A dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today with episode 509 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Monday, September 13th, 2010. And uh, that means it's a Monday. We'll be doing your questions by email. Remember, if you'd like to be on a Monday show, the way to try to do that is to uh, send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com with the term question for Jack in the subject line, even if it's uh, even if it's an article or something like that you want me to comment on. So we to do that. I want to say a couple things today before we even do our housekeeping about emails, though. It's very important uh, that you guys hear this because I want you to know uh, that I do what I can. One, I get about 20 to 40 emails a day just with question for Jack in it. Uh, some days it's as high as 50 to 60. There is no guarantee if you send me an email like this, it's going to get on the show. I do what I can to get uh, stuff on the show. Uh, when I get a ton on one thing, I always try to get that on the show, but it's impossible for me to fit them all. If I did shows like this five days a week, it would never happen. Two, personal emails. I do my best to answer as many of them as I can. I used to answer them all. I, I can't possibly answer every email I get anymore. I do my very best. I pretty much read every email. Sometimes I'm just tired. I can't answer them all. Um, but I want you to know that if you send me an email, it is read, it is heard. And if I you know, have the energy, I'll answer it. If I don't, don't feel slighted. Don't feel that I don't care. Keep emailing me. Eventually, you'll you know, hit the point where I'll email you back. Um, it's just physically impossible for one person to respond to the volume of email I get at this time. Um, that's a blessing because it means there's a lot of you. It's a curse because it means I can't answer everybody. I do my best, and I'm sorry when I don't get back to you. Uh, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping now. Sponsor of the day number one, as always, uh, we need to take care of our sponsors, folks. They do a lot to make sure this show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today is silverandgoldshop.com, the wonderful Mary Beth Maidmont. Wonderful is your word, not mine. Well, I use the word too, but man, I, I get emails from people all the time telling me how wonderful Mary Beth is because of what great service she provides to everybody that deals with her and buys silver and or gold from, uh, from her website. Great website, really cool silver rounds, some stuff you won't find anywhere else, like the Tea Party Silver Rounds, uh, which the original name of Mary's company was teapartysilver.org. Uh, she changed it to silverandgoldshop.com to better indicate what she does. And uh, I, I'll tell you what, it's just really an amazing assortment and a great person that's going to take good care of you. And I believe silver and gold should be part of your portfolio. I also have taken to uh, giving away silver dollars, silver rounds to my nieces, nephews, and things like that. You know, Christmases and birthdays, rather than giving them plastic toy crap that they're going to, you know, enjoy for a day or two and then end up on the pile of all the other plastic toy crap they already have. And uh, when I first did that, I wondered how it would be received. Uh, with any kid that's old enough to kind of get what it is, four, five, and up, what I've seen is bouncing. They really seem to, uh, to, to, to actually appreciate it more than I thought they would. I thought it was a gamble the first time I did it, but, uh, it's what I'm going to do from now on when things like that come up. 
So you might want to consider that as well. Next up today, ready-made resources. What more can you ask for a company to, to tell it, you exactly what they are and what they do? That's what ready-made resources does by saying we have all the resources you need ready-made for your prepping. Uh, they also have something special going on. They have a 25% off all Mountain House items, 25% off all Mountain House long-term food storage items going on. The last day to partake of that is today. Uh, that's been running through this part of the month. Uh, you can find their banner on our website at thesurvivalpodcast.com, but that is a great deal. I recommend that you take advantage of it while you have the opportunity. Again, they're running a special for the first part of September that expires today, and that special is 25% off of all Mountain House items uh, with free shipping, I believe, as well. Uh, with that, uh, I also want to remind you guys that we do have a special show coming up, episode 550. I want to feature you guys telling me what prepping survivalism and the survival podcast has meant to your life, how you've improved your life with the type of things that we talk about here, uh, what your history is, getting out of debt, anything that's really made your life better. The uh, best way to get a feel for the type of calls to make, just listen to the one-year anniversary show. I'll link out that today. I really need a lot of calls for those folks, though, to fill up an hour. You get about two minutes uh, to, to say your piece. And uh, if you mess one up and you want to you know, try it again, just call in and, and just do a second one, just roll through. I'll pick the best one out of the two or the three as I go through screening them. But 866-65-THINK, same number you call to be in on the call-in shows, and just let us know what the Survival Podcast has meant to you. Let's make 550 a great episode. Let's make it all about you. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. You'll also get discounts to about 20 different vendors. Uh, you'll get... Uh, 20 videos that are available nowhere else but there by me. And what you'll actually be doing is supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. With that wrapping up the housekeeping, uh, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. And uh, again, we're taking your questions by email. Those are sent to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Okay, this one comes to us from Richard, and it's a, uh, it's an article online. And it's in the DeKalb County News. So I'm not sure where that's at, DeKalb County. I guess that's Georgia. Because uh, it has Atlanta weather on the top, and it's called AJC.com. Well, um, let me just read. It's a short article, so I'll just read the whole thing to you and see if it starts your Monday off on the uh, <clears throat> absolutely the wrong note. And again, folks, I apologize. I'm still dealing with a cold or an allergy or something here, so my voice is a little off today. Uh, just, just hold over from Friday, I guess. The Cal County has cited a man for growing too many vegetables on his land. Channel 2 Action News reported Steve Miller of Clarkson said he plans to fight the county and has gotten his two-acre property rezoned so he can have his garden, but he still faces nearly $5,000 in fines, Miller told Channel 2. Miller has been growing a variety of vegetables for 15 years, and his neighbors support him. He sells what he grows at local markets and gives some away, he said. It's a way of life. It's like something in my blood, Miller told Channel 2. The county says Miller grows more crops on his land than allocated under zoning regulations. Code enforcement officers began ticketing him in January for a zoning violation for allegedly having an unpermitted employees on his property. The county declined to comment because the case is still pending. Um, I bring this on for a couple reasons. One, outrage. I should call this county Ats Clowns of the Year, but uh, not going to do that today. Uh, it's more so that you're paying attention in your own area, your own neighborhood, and where you're trying to do things. Um, we often think the federal government is the enemy and the local government is, is not. And sometimes it's completely the reverse. This is a local government, and they want their money. That's what this comes down to. Um, he had the land zoned improperly, whatever the hell that means, to plant a bunch of food. 
And uh, so he did the rezoning, and they still want $5,000 in fine money from him. And they're worried that he might have an unpermitted employee on the property. An unpermitted employee. Now, I've run quite a few businesses in my life, and I have never needed a permit to have an employee. Now, the language in here could be wrong. Maybe it's not really a permit. Maybe the reporting got this backwards or something, uh, or the person speaking on behalf of the county didn't say it quite right. Maybe that he has people working there as employees for him, uh, and he has them working long enough to be employees. They're not contractors or what have you, and he's not carrying workers' compensation on them. That would be an issue at the state level if you have employees You're required to carry workers' comp. It doesn't sound like that, though. It sounds like this place has some kind of employee permit. For every employee you have, you have to pay X dollars or something like that. This is about money. This isn't a conspiracy of people trying to take away your right to grow food. This is a county, or uh, in this case a county, or any other local government looking at something and going, hmm, we're not getting enough money out of this. Recently, I read about another county. You can't remember where it was, but here's what they were doing. They were getting onto Google Earth or Google uh, Maps and losing the satellite view, and looking all over uh, their their city and looking for any um, of the uh, swimming pools that were not permitted. And, of course, they said it wasn't about money. It was about safety because you need to make sure the pools are behind a fence and things like that. Well, you know, I want to bet you that if it's a typical suburban subdivision, um, you know, there's pretty much a fence everywhere. Every yard is fenced in. And if it wasn't fenced in, it would have been easily spotted by the little code officials that, you know, drive around eating their lunch and look for things like this. So it was about money. And understand that our governments, governments are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse in the future because they're going broke. And it's time to start protecting yourself. And this is why I'm so big on moving the hell out of the suburbs, the hell out of these organized communities, all of this stuff, and going out some unincorporated piece of land where yeah, life is a little bit harder, but at least you're free to do things like grow freaking vegetables. This is why I talk about the stuff that I do every day. This is why I say if you want to live in, in the suburbs or an urban area and do the urban permaculture thing and all, you know, more power to you. I support you. And, and But please know that the more governments around you, the more problem you're going to have. And that, the reason I brought this story up is I wanted to make that point today very succinctly. Our problem today is not the government. It is our governments. We have all of us. You know, there's a, an old movie. Uh, with the red stapler, what's it called, Office Space, where the main character in the movie at some point kind of snaps, and part of when he snaps is he says, you know, I have I have seven bosses or eight bosses or nine bosses or whatever it is, that when I screw one thing up, they all come by to tell me I screwed it up. And, and that's how it is with government. We Instead of having nine bosses to tell us we screwed up, we have nine bosses taking a piece of our salary. We have our local city government, we have our county government, we have our state government, and we have our federal government. Some of us are putting ourselves into willing servitude by having homeowners associations. And there's often interlinking governments that come in, and then we have government agencies. We have the EPA, the DEA, the, the, the you know housing and urban uh, development. We have all of these people dipping in their, their hand in the kitty jar, you know, and, and coming up with their own laws and rules and regulations that we have to follow. And I am not an anarchist. I am not for no government, but I think we have too much. This is just another example. Now, here's the good news. The, the closer the government is to the people, the greater the people have the opportunity to control the government. 
So in this county, the people behind this should be voted out of office. They should be picketed. You guys are DeKalb County. I'll leave that to you. But uh, there you go. Major Monday, uh, I guess. Let's go ahead and take another one. Here's one that doesn't really seem directly survival-related, I guess. But, um, you know, it has a, a pretty big impact uh, on, on our, our sustainability and our self-sufficiency, how we live as far as our debt, how, as far, how we live as far as income, and how, how we live as far as uh, acquiring wealth. And uh, I, this is a little blunt, but I used to work for a guy. He was really a jerk, but he did make some good points at one time, and he said, life is like a shit sandwich. The more bread you have, the less shit you have to eat. And uh, I think there's a case for that. And, and I know that's blunt, but hey, once in a while we need to be blunt, and uh, that's how I'm answering this from the standpoint of that if you have income and wealth, and you stabilize your investments, and you secure your investments, you're better off. doesn't mean I'm going to be totally in favor of the question. This is from Matthew. Matthew says, I'm renting now and actively searching for a duplex or a triplex to buy. In the future, I'd like to own multiple rental properties, figuring that everyone needs somewhere to live, and if I can have someone else help me pay my mortgage, all of which I can afford by myself and my current job, then why not? What do you think about owning rental pro pro uh, properties as a side business in a down economy? Thanks for your show, Matthew. Um, here's the deal. It's not for everyone. I've done it exactly one time. I rented my personal property to a relative. I felt they were abusive to the property. They didn't take care of the property. They left the property worse than when they moved in. I rented to them at a very low rental rate so that I knew they could afford to live because they were family. And I will never do it again under those circumstances. I actually feel now that if I, <clears throat> if I had rented to strangers, made their lives harder, and charged them more rent, they would have probably taken better care of my property. Um, so personally for me, I'm not looking to do this. As an investor, if you're asking me this to look at this from a, a financial standpoint, the same way I would look at you know buying gold or silver or stocks or bonds, uh, there, is val there is validity here, but there's also a huge potential to get burned. Now, What it sounds like Matthew wants to do initially is go find a duplex or a triplex that he can afford to buy instead of buying a single-family home. Buying that, living in one of the units and renting the other one, and using the proceeds from rental income to pay on the house. There's definitely some validity there. What I, well, the big thing I want to get out to people, though, is that this, you know, buying property, fixing it up a little bit, flipping it, or buying property, fixing it up a little bit, becoming a landlord is not something that really is easy to do as like this kind of part-time, semi-amateur thing. That it's a real business that requires um, real effort, and it requires a lot of effort. It requires a lot of things from a legality standpoint, uh, with drawing up leases and you know selecting tenants and non-discrimination against tenants. And in this economy, we have the potential for a neighborhood that's relatively nice, to become crap overnight, and if you're holding too much equity against that and you can't get out of it, you might not be able to rent sufficient to uh, to uh, actually pay for the house. So, And when you lose a tenant, you always end up with damages, and no matter what you took in a security deposit, they want to threaten to sue you to get their security deposit back, even if they don't have a leg to stand on, and it's usually not enough to cover the damages anyway, and you have to put more capital into the property, and then you have to market and bring in a new tenant. That said, it's a great way to become a millionaire. In spite of everything I just said, there's been more millionaires made by buying and flipping or buying and renting property than probably anything else that anybody's done in America to become a millionaire if you're coming from the working class up to the millionaire status.
So it's tough, it's hard, and there's a lot of stuff to learn, and I'm not one of these people that can teach you about it. My experience with it is limited. There is something there. Starting as an owner-occupied space with additional space tenanted out would probably be a great way to start. You're going to learn a lot. If you buy in a reasonable price point, make a good deal when you buy it, the ability to sell that property is probably going to be enhanced. Because let me put it to you this way. Say you find a triplex, for example, and you have your two units rented out, and you just want out, but there's enough cash flow already there that you can sell the property and transfer the tenants, that's a very marketable property. So it's a safe hedge there. That said, this economy is not going, done going down yet. And you might want to be careful with that, and you might want to wait until we truly hit a bottom and see if you still want to do it. If we do then, it might be an even better time than, than now. Now is probably a pretty good time. So I'm sorry I can't be more... Like, this is what you should do on this one. Occasionally I answer a question that I really can't fully answer, uh, just to stay humble, I guess, and just so that you guys know that I don't think I know every answer to every question. Um, but my overall advice is be very cautious. Starting as an owner-occupier is probably a, a much safer way to do this, especially if you're going to buy a triplex or a duplex where you could have bought a house and paid the same money. Uh, and you, You'd be happy to live there and use the space until you find a tenant. Kind of um, a college of, of, of becoming a landlord, I think, is a way to look at this. Uh, your education is it's probably the best way to look at this. Not thinking you're going to get wealthy right away, but if you build enough equity in that property, maybe eventually you move out to another place and you rent that third space. And uh, at that point, maybe you do have some passive income out of it. Personally, I'm not messing with it. With that, let's go ahead and uh, take another one of your questions. Uh, here's another interesting question. It comes from um, Rob. Rob says, hey, I'm thinking about hiring a permaculture designer to help me design my yard. I talked to the folks at Midwest Permaculture, and Bill recommended a local guy. Do you think it's a good idea to hire an expert to help in the design process? Thanks for all you do, Rob. I think it's a great idea. I think it's a wonderful idea, and here's a couple things we need to think about. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things going on here that are kind of under the surface. One, do we believe that permaculture is a viable technology, and do we believe that the world would be a better place if it was more mainstream and more people do about it, and people could actually make a living with it? If we do, then we need to support the people that want to do it for a living, and one way is to hire them. I don't think there's anything you could hire them to do that would be more valuable than developing an initial design for you. I think that is probably the most critical component because everything else, once you have a design, you can do yourself or you can hire a contractor to do for you. If it's heavy work, you can bring in a machine to do it, what have you. But the designer is the one that's going to say, this is where this goes, this is where that goes. I think it's a great idea. Before I hired a designer for any kind of fee, you know, more than a couple hundred bucks, if he's going to actually charge some real money, if you want to call it that for it, I'm going to want to see designs he's done in the past. I'm going to want to see layouts. I'm, you know, I'm going to want to see something. Um, and I, I want to see what your deliverable is going to be because I'm not going to pay you a lot of money to come out and say you should do this, 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 and this, and goodbye and shake my hand and not leave me with a deliverable. I'm going to want a plot. I'm going to want it done to scale. I'm going to want recommendations for... Plant types and plant varieties. When I say types, I mean I'm going to want plant your short trees here, your big trees here, your climbers here, uh, that type of thing. And I'm going to want some varieties based on my geographic region. Here's some varieties that you could choose from. I'm more concerned with the types than the varieties, though. I want a complete layout. I want this is how I I want basically two designs from a designer if I was hiring someone to do this. Blue sky. If budget's not an, if budget is no there's no question on budget. And we could do anything you want to do here. What would you do to this property? 
and then I want you to scale it back to 50% of that. You might end up not doing 100% of either design, but when you take those two designs, you'll be able to slowly build out either one over time, choose what you're going to do on your own, choose what you're going to hire out, and you're, the, the big thing is you're going to start out with proper design. Now, that assumes the person doing it isn't just someone that took a course, that someone's been doing it for a while, has gained some experience, maybe has worked pro bono, has at least done their own property this way, and has proven out their capabilities. If you have that, I'll put it to you this way. If I could find a qualified expert to come do that for me, and as much as I know about permaculture, think about that, as much as I know about permaculture, if I could find a qualified expert with a history of doing good design, to come out and plot out my five acres in Arkansas, leave me with two sets of plots, and they said, I want $2,000, $2,500 to do that, I would spit and shake on that deal today. You know, I, I think it's that valuable. If they wanted ten grand to do it, and they weren't going to do anything, they're just going to, no, I'm sorry. I, I don't think it has that level of value. But for a five-acre property, yeah. Now, a backyard in suburbia, I mean, you should be talking a few hundred to five hundred bucks. In my, you know, I've never priced this stuff, so I don't know. Uh, but I definitely think a good designer is a good thing to bring in. And you might want to bring in, if you can't find an experienced designer, you've got a couple of people that are, you know, trying to get started, have them come in and say, hey, cut me a, cut me a great deal on price and pay the three of them what you would pay one. You know, and, and let them all get some experience with it and let them have something on their resume. Even if you don't choose their design to be able to say, this is something I did for somebody else, there's probably a lot of them out there that are just getting started with do it for next to nothing, and I think you should pay them something anyway. It, again, it comes down, do we believe in this technology? If we believe in a technology, we have to be able to put our money where our mouth is. That doesn't mean we go to the poor house, we mortgage our house to be able to pay a permaculturist to come help us. But it does mean if we're given a first fair service, that we, re, you know, return a fair compensation for that service. And I think most of us, you know, if, um, if somebody just showed up at our house and painted our house for free and said, hey, don't worry about it, we'd want to compensate them in some way. Well, when a permaculturist comes to your house and helps you design something, to me, I feel they've done a hell of a lot more than painting your house. So even if you have people willing to do it for free, compensate them in some way. With that, let's go ahead and take another one of your questions. That was a good one. Man, this next question is great, too. This comes to me from Patrick. I'm going to read his whole book, uh, including, uh, because I, one, I want, again, if you want to get, get me to answer your question, this is the way to do it. And uh, two, I think that the information he gives is going to be valuable and, and a big part of the answer itself. So Patrick says, hey, Jack, I know you've recently answered a question for a caller about preparedness while going through a divorce, which got me thinking about the other end of the spectrum. I was wondering if you could offer any helpful pointers for a prepper going through a wedding. I recently proposed to my now fiancé, and she enthusiastically answered yes. Congratulations, Patrick. We've announced it to all our friends and family, and we're now trying to decide a location and date. She's picked up the Green Bride Guide. I'm going to say that again. The Green Bride Guide. I think you guys need... If you're, if you know anybody getting married, maybe give them a copy of this and, and send it to them as a pre-wedding gift. Which is a nice book that focuses on being thrifty, creative, and green while planning your wedding and how to avoid being swept up in the machine that is the wedding industry. Oh my god, that's important. It's got a lot of great pointers and we've found a ton of ways to save money that could be better used in going towards a down payment on our first home. Some examples of things we are planning on include foregoing her wedding band in place of an engagement ring. So the engagement ring is the wedding ring. Uh, finding her a used dress. Finding a venue to rent for next to nothing. 
uh, through some wealthy friends of the family and using locally grown flower arrangements instead of rare and exotic chemically treated arrangements. Love to get some of your insight on this, even some helpful pointers on preparedness-minded soon-to-be groom. As always, love the show. Well, that one is something I probably could do an entire show on, and I've been thinking about that, um, about weddings, and, and then maybe a second one about marriage. I've already done the you know reluctant spouse one long, long time ago. And, uh, but I think this is one we, we at least take, take kind of a snapshot at today because I do have some strong opinions on this. First look at what big is. In 2008, I believe, is the stat that I have. Let me check on that so I give you the right statistic. Yeah, 2008, uh, the total spending on weddings in the United States was $86 billion. $86 billion. Um, the numbers for 2009 at the date of this report were not available yet. I can't find anything more recent than this without uh, digging really hard. But $86 billion, let's call it $90 billion by now, right? $90 billion. And I don't believe that that number truly accounts for everything associated with a wedding. It's probably gowns, re you know, receptions, honeymoons, right? Um How much spending goes into people buying stuff for wedding gifts and things like that and planning and that, that are outside of the, the measurable scope? Just call it $90 billion. What is $90 billion a year held onto by new couples worth to our economy? Is from a, not from a growth standpoint, because everyone else is talking about growth, from, from a stability standpoint. So I just wanted to give you a mile high view. Now let's, let's talk about it more practical down at the, the application level for the individual. The average wedding in the United States has a total spending of about $19,800, according to the statistics that I found. Let's call that twenty grand. A new couple, therefore, starts out with $20,000 less than they should have, period. The number one cause of divorce in the United States of America today is stress related to financial problems. I mean, do we really have to go deeper than that? To realize where the problem is. Now, some people will say, well, what about, you know, parents pay for part of the wedding or all of the wedding and things like that, then the couple wouldn't have the money. Hey, if you're going to give a couple money to get married, how about this? How about you give them money to invest in their marriage? And this is my big thing. This is the, the one that I hope people that are getting ready to get married, and I know there's a lot of brides out there that are going to be pissed off if they hear this. I don't know how many brides listen to the Survival Podcast, but do not focus on your wedding. Focus on your marriage. You will be in a wedding for a few hours in one day. You will go on a honeymoon for a period of a few days. And you will be married, if you do it right, for the rest of your life. In weddings, people get so hung up on flowers and decorations and doilies and gowns. And the gown expense is huge. And taking expensive and exotic vacations and things like this. And they say, but you only do it once. Well, that's actually my point. You only do it once. You have the rest of your life to take vacations together. Um, the rest of your life. You have the rest of your life for fancy di dinners with people that you don't really know. And a lot of big weddings, that's what happens. Is There's all kinds of people at these weddings that bride and groom don't even really know. Don't really know them. Or they're invited out of a sense of obligation. I'll tell you what. Anybody who I cared enough to show up at their wedding... If they got married in a beautiful place with a great big feast and everything else in an open bar and, and all the wonderful things that cost so much money, if I cared enough to show up there, I'd show up in the backyard of a friend's house for it. I would show up on the side of a highway for it. 
or on the shores of a beach for. And I wouldn't care whether they were getting married in a beautiful tux and a beautiful gown or a pair of blue jeans and a, and a t-shirt on both of them. And I know a bride is supposed to look beautiful on, his we on, their, on their wedding day. But to me, if I'm marrying someone, they look beautiful to me all the time. And I think we spend too much on weddings. And I think if the money that most couples spend on their wedding was instead of invested in their wedding, invested in their marriages, we'd have a lower divorce rate today. Best I can do with that one. I know that doesn't sound like the big survivalist type of thing to talk about, but you know, here's how I feel about this. I've said this before. If we lose the family, we've lost everything. The reason I'm so concerned with preparedness for myself and for my nation is so that we stay together as families. This nation wasn't built strong just on liberty. It was built strong on the backs of families that stuck together through tough things. And I've seen so many pieces of the family unit destroyed today. It's this time we start investing in that institution again. It's time we stop letting politicians tell us what a threat to the family really is. They are the threat to the family. Spending is a threat to the family. Debt is a threat to the family. These are the threats. Their political nonsense that they stir up, those aren't the threats. Overtaxation. Penalizing people by taxing them more because they're married. These are threats to marriage. Subsidizing things like illegitimacy is a threat to marriage. And you know the one that they hold up, I won't even bring up today and make this divisive, I think this is a pretty good answer. That's not a threat to marriage. A threat to marriage is having most of our couples start out in the hole. When based on the numbers alone, they could be starting out at least even or 20,000 in the black. If the main thing that destroys our families today is finances, then maybe we need to think about that on our wedding day and invest more into our marriage. Let's go ahead and take another one. All right, here's an interesting question, kind of going back to the garden here for a minute. Uh, Brad says, you mentioned using cardboard as a weed barrier, then adding compost and mulch on top of it. Have you ever used several layers of newspaper? I've heard from a few sources that newspaper print breaks down easier than cardboard, and the ink used in newspapers is vegetable-based, so it has nutrients to the soil. Uh, in addition, it is what is provided in the paper product. Um, you can, uh, but the advantage is a disadvantage in many instances. It does break down faster. It breaks down extremely fast. Uh, four or five layers of newspaper, um, wet it up, plant some Bermuda grass seed underneath it, and then cover it with about two inches of mulch and see how long it takes for some of that grass to get up to light. And once it does and it starts fueling the rhizomes of the roots underneath it, watch how quickly all of a sudden you have Bermuda grass growing right through all of that, even though it started out under the cardboard or under the newspaper. Cardboard is going to take a lot longer to break down. It's going to give a lot more time and moisture for any weed seeds to rot. It's going to be much more difficult for anything that does have a root system already down there that you weren't able to remove uh, to, uh, to basically expend and lose all its energy. And it's going to do a better job of preventing weeds. That's why we use it in the first place. It's more effective. Can you use newspaper? Absolutely. Is it effective? Absolutely. Especially if you go and you put in a brand new raised bed. And uh, you've tilled the soil or d dug it out, what have you, built your sides, whether they're rock or, or you know cement or wood or whatever, filled it in with brand new soil uh, that you've mixed from like compost and things like that. It's really free of a lot of the weed seeds and all. And uh, you go lay that down and you use that just to prevent a lot of weed seeds from getting a good start. 
through that first year, it'll work pretty well. And if you're going year after year, removing your mulch and, and re, you know, redoing things once a year, it's not a bad thing. It's a good use for newspaper. And newspaper does have a valid use, and it, it can work you know, for you that way. You want to use more than you think you need. Um, I was watching Bill Mollison plant potatoes using this technique, using newspaper, and uh, he was using probably about a quarter inch thick of newspaper uh, in each place that he was laying things down and then mulching on top of with straw. But I'll remind you that we had a caller call in about four months ago that used newspaper uh, somewhere it was either Montana or Wyoming or something like that, did the no-till method, and ended up with huge amounts of native grasses growing through the newspaper. My advice was you should have used cardboard. And cardboard is going to be much better at holding back that weed blocking. It's also not going to survive but for about a year. It's going to break down. There's a belief that people have that the quicker something gets into the soil, the better. Well, it's not always true. For instance, I remember talking or listening to one permaculturist uh, on YouTube, and he said that he had brought in a bunch of, uh, actually I think this was uh, Wayne Wiseman talking about a gentleman that did this in the uh, permaculture uh, course I took with Midwest Permaculture. This permaculturist uh, that lived somewhere up in New England had a whole bunch of shells brought in and just tilled all these clam and oyster shells into his soil. And the guy from the Ag Extension said, dude, it's going to take a hundred years for that to break down, as though that were a problem. And his response was, great, then I have a hundred years worth of calcium in my soil now. See, it's all about how you look at things. So having the barrier last longer but still break down is an advantage. It's also, cardboard's a paper product. It's made mostly with, uh, with, with wood fiber. Uh, so it's going to break down the same way that anything else will. Uh, it's just going to take longer to do it. That means it's going to deliver its nutrients into the soil over a longer period of time and act as a better barrier. That's why I recommend it in most situations, and there's no shortage of it. You can find it all over the place for the asking. Uh, let's go ahead and take another question. Here's an example of somebody doing something I didn't think you If you would ask me if you could do this, I would say no. Um, this is uh, from, I won't say whose name because I'm going to give the, the state because that's going to be important for people. I know people are going to want to know that. This person's from Indiana. It says, love this show. I've listened to all 500 in two months. I love the new Droid app. Uh, by the way, we have an Android app you can find in the Android Marketplace. Just search for Survival Podcast and you'll find it. Uh, more on permaculture and gardening. Uh, sprouting seeds for sprouts is the most nutrition for long-term food preps. He says, but this is the one I wanted you to hear. The pawpaws are heavy this year, and three weeks early. I've gotten pawpaw trees to produce only four years, growing them from seed. It can be done. Uh, I'm going to email this person back and ask for exactly what they did and get some more information on it. But I think that the bigger thing I wanted people to understand here is that we have a tendency when we're doing our plantings to look for immediate gratification and I am big on a lot of bushes and vines for perennial fruits because you're going to get into production faster than any sort of tree. Uh, so I'm big on doing that. But I'm also big on planting the other things. And many times, just because somebody says it'll take 20 years for a monkey puzzle tree to produce or something like that, doesn't mean that it has to. And I'm interested in what this, this, this person here did. Again, I'm going to email them, but this is what I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess that they got the seedlings off to an amazing start. And they planted native seedlings so that they were highly adapted to the area. Uh, that they fertilized and watered the trees far more heavily than one normally would a tree. 
that they mulched heavily, they planted them in a proper area where they got the right amount of sunlight for them, possibly a little more than one would expect for an understory tree to get a better uh, growth habitat. And uh, that combination made them grow. But the big thing I want as a takeaway for the audience is don't be afraid to try stuff. Because I've had very experienced permaculturists tell you the problem with pawpaw trees is 15 years before you get anything out of them. Well, here's someone that did it from a seed in four. So, again, I'll email this person now that I've done their question on the air and ask them about that. But uh, I'd like to hear from anybody else out there in the audience who has done something that's not supposed to be possible. Got something to produce from seed faster than possible. Grown a tree in a, a USDA zone it's not supposed to survive in by doing certain things. The more we hear about this, the more adventurous we become and the more we're going to be willing to do things uh Uh, on, on the cuff, so to speak, and learn. Because progress is not made by doing things the same way over and over again. Progress is made by breaking rules and determining what works and what doesn't when we break rules, tweaking them and continuing to break rules until we break rules so long that they're no longer rules. That's how we make progress. So kudos to this, this person here for making progress. And again, I'll get more information on that one. Thank you for that question. So this next one is a little article sent in by a fellow named Joseph. And Joseph sends me this article. And it said, this is from the 26th of August. So it's almost a month old at this point. But I want you to think about some of the comments I've paid, played by Peter Schiff lately. Those go back to around the end of August and into uh, last week. And uh, about the bond bubble, the United States Treasury bond bubble, and that it soon will burst, and that's going to bring bad things to the economy. And then I want you to think about this article from oilpoorice.com, written by uh, Mad Hedge Fund Trader. It's official. China is unloading its, its treasury bonds. It looks like smart money these days is found in China. While American investors have been scrambling over each other to buy more treasury bonds at historically low yields, China has begun quietly unloading some of its own enormous holdings. In June, the Middle Kingdom sold $21.2 billion of paper, reducing its net long to $839.7 billion. There's a little more than 10% of the total of $8.18 trillion in federal debt that Uncle Sam has outstanding. Uh, the foreign ownership of U.S. Treasury bonds amounts to $4 trillion, up from $2.4 trillion in three years. Let me say that one again. Total foreign ownership of U.S. Treasury bonds amounts to $4 trillion, up from $2.4 trillion in three years. So three years ago, the United States owed $2.4 trillion in treasuries to foreign, to foreign owners of the Treasury bonds. Today it's $4 trillion. That is all 100% new money pumped into our economy through lending money into existence. Back to the article. Uh, instead, the Chinese have been buying Japanese bonds, such today carry a paltry 0.9% yield, less than 1%, but have the merit that they are denominated in a rapidly appreciating currency. The Mandarins in Beijing have also been picking up a variety of bonds in Europe, which have seen yields pushed to new, near records, thanks to the debt crisis there. Officials from the People's Bank of China say it's all part of a broader diversification effort away from the greenback. Um, I'm going to leave it there, but I want you to look at the article today. It'll be in today's show notes. You'll see this, this great, huge uh, graph. Starting back in August of 07, you'll see the Chinese and their lending to us go up, 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 up. And you'll see right about December of 09, you'll see it start to slide down. And I want you to think about what that slide down might mean if there's not enough other people willing to come in. looks like there are right now, but other people willing to come in and buy these bonds. 
Um, again, Schiff is, is uh, stating that we're going to see a bust in the uh, Treasury market, and it's going to mean bad things across the board because it's going to. Here's the thing: what Schiff was Schiff saying is the banks right now are doing the same thing. They're buying the Treasury, so our banks are buying Treasuries. They're getting one interest rate there, and they're borrowing from the Fed at the discount rate, and they're making the spread in difference. They're turning around and, lo- and doing the refinancing is booming, and they're refinancing mortgages down to four percent. Well, what happens? When all when this high interest rate in the treasuries uh, drops, the banks are holding long loans at four percent when they can't make the spread anymore because they borrowed the money to make the loans. Um, I don't want to go too deep into that. Peter said it pretty well. You can listen to uh, the last Friday show and the Friday show before that. The last parts of them, if you haven't heard those yet, and you want to hear what Peter Schiff has to say about that. But here's what I'm seeing. And I think this is the one that I haven't read. I've read a lot about this this whole thing with China unloading, and I don't think anybody's maybe made this connection yet. When a private investor goes into somewhere like China and buys their bonds, or goes to Japan, or goes to the U.S. and buys our bonds, they're really on a, a one one play uh, field. In other words, the bond either does well or it does not. And it can do well either with interest rates or it can do well with currency appreciation. See, if I go to Japan and I buy bonds in Japan, I'm not just buying the interest rate in Japan of nine-tenths of a percent, which, of course, is terrible. I am also buying Japanese currency. And if the Japanese currency performs well against the dollar, if it rises against the dollar by 10% over a year and I sell my bonds, I didn't just make nine-tenths of a percent. I made 10.9-tenths of a percent because I made the currency appreciation. The government of China is doing this, not individual business people, which means China can artificially deflate its currency while holding an appreciating appreciating currency and then convert their bonds back into their own native currency. It's like being able to buy with dollars and then purposely on your own devalue the dollar. Think about that. What if you could go and buy a whole bunch of Canadian dollars And then without pushing down the Canadian dollar, manually push down the American dollar and then switch back and, and, and make the appreciation. That's something that China has to be very careful with, but it is certainly something that they can do. It's also maybe an endgame play. I want you to think about this, what, what China can do with this. They don't have to manipulate anything. They just keep their currency pegged to our dollar and they let us do the damage for them. Because the Chinese currency has been pegged to the dollar for years. There's nothing weird about the Chinese currency being pegged to the dollar. So as we tank the dollar, the Chinese currency artificially tanks along the way, and no one looks guilty because the Chinese say, hey, it's what we always did, right? At the same time, they're diversifying their, their, their debt holdings into Japan and into European governments that have currencies that are performing well against the dollar. At the same time, they're investing in gold, and they're buying mining and farmland and other commodities throughout the world. At some point, when they divest themselves of U.S. Treasury sufficiently to more than offset it with other nations' bonds and commodities, they unpeg the Chinese currency, which because of all the investments has been deflated massively. The Chinese currency rises. It gives them additional buying power, and that is their endgame play to take over as the new economic superpower of the world. Sound like a conspiracy, or does it sound like mathematical plausibility? It's certainly something that could be done. Everything that they're doing certainly indicates that. 
All of the big money is bullish on China. No one's saying this. I'm the first person I've ever heard say this. If you've heard it somewhere else, tell me. It won't deflate my ego. It'll give me validity. I would like to know. But that's what I see China doing right now from an economic standpoint. They are allowing the U.S. to trash the dollar and at the same time trash their own currency. And right now people say, well, the dollar's strengthened, but it hasn't strengthened that much. And the long-term outlook, the long-term forecast is bad. And at the same time, they're slowly selling off these U.S. treasuries during a bull market. They're going into other places with low interest but strong currencies. And they're buying the crap out of oil production and farmland production throughout Africa, Latin, and South America. They're buying the crap out of gold. They're encouraging their people to own gold and silver. You tell me. I think I just figured out the Chinese endgame. Like to hear your comments on that one today, including why I might be wrong, because, hey, this just came to me this morning as I started evaluating all this in a different light. I might be making a uh, too much of a, a fantasy leap there. You want to hold me back in? You want to tell me where I'm wrong? Please do. I'd like to know. You want to show me someone else that said this has already happened? I'd love to see that. Let's go ahead and take another question. Here's a quick little one. It's not a question, but I wanted to uh, just give feedback and props to a, a sponsor that's done a good job. Joe says, just wanted to pass along that I had a great interaction with Shelf Reliance. I ordered the cancellator to help organize my copy canning inventory. At checkout, I told them I was a member of the TSB MSB. When my package arrived, they had thrown in a second cancellator on top of the discount I received at checkout. I thought that was pretty cool and that other folks might want to know how awesome they've been to work with. Thanks for everything, Joe. Uh, guys, they can't promise you that every time you buy a cancellator from Shelf Reliance, they're going to throw an extra one in, but I'm sure it's going to hell going to give them props for the occasional time they do something like that. Um, the cancellator is a great product. It's uh, And I want to just give you an idea of what they did here. I'm not sure which cancellator he bought. There's there's three of them, but the medium-sized one is probably the most popular. It's called the Pantry. Uh, they just sent me one to do a review. I'll be doing a review for YouTube of the uh, cancellator Pantry this week. Um, but it is about 33 bucks. So if they gave him two for one, they just gave him a $30 item just because he supports the show. Check out Shelf Reliance and make sure when you go to Shelf Reliance, you click through their banner on the website because they're always running some kind of special, not just for MSB, but for all uh, Survival Podcast listeners. They pretty much change it every month. So uh, check that out. They're, they, they control their own banner and their own specials. They don't always tell me when they put something new on, but uh, great sponsor. Glad to have them. And I just wanted to let you know, a listener give, you, give them some, some props because uh, it's important for you guys to know that a lot of these sponsors don't just support the show. They support the listeners as well. So thanks to ShelfReliance.com. Uh, let's take another question. Uh, here's a great question. Um, comes from Ryan. Ryan says, uh, just picked up a Mazda Nagant. Uh, it's covered with oil slash grease, which internet searching leads me to believe it's Cosmoline. What is the best way to clean this stuff up and make this a usable rifle? Thanks so much, Jack. Uh, you definitely want to remove Cosmoline out of your bore and out of all your functioning and moving parts before you start using a rifle. Uh, there is belief, and I, I believe it's valid, that Cosmoline in the bore can actually damage the bore if it's being fired. And certainly all the functioning mechanisms, Cosmoline is so sticky and greasy, it's going to make cleaning a lot harder after it's full of gunk and gunpowder residue and things like that than before. So you want to do that. But function, it'll function. So if you have a Cosmoline-wrapped weapon and it needs to be deployed immediately and you don't have time to clean it, I wouldn't rely on it, but at least if you pull the trigger, it will go bang. If it's semi-auto, you may end up with it not functioning properly. It needs to be properly cleaned. The way to do this is relatively simple, though, and there's two portions of this that you really need to be concerned with. One is 
from a functional standpoint, everything is metal on the weapon, especially anything that moves or the bore itself. The good news is Cosmoline is a grease, and it is very easy to take off with any kind of a good degreaser. Uh, one of the best things I've found that just strips it bare almost immediately is Birchwood Casey Gun Scrubber. It's fairly expensive, so I don't like to use it for the entire operation. You can use any commercial degreasing formula uh, to degrease uh, you know, kind of the surface level. Uh, but the Birchwood Casey, all your small parts, spraying it with that, I mean, it just cleans it. And I, including what I've done with it is I've actually sprayed it down the bore. Uh, to help strip all that cosmoline, because getting all the cosmoline out of the bore is often difficult. A lot of these nations basically dunked these weapons in cosmoline when they were put into storage. A lot of the SKSs coming out of Yugoslavia, when you get them, if you get them right out of a crate, they're wrapped in brown paper, and it's literally soaked in cosmoline. And that's because, in spite of the fact that it has some performance issues, the gun will last forever that way. I mean, it could be in that crate for 150 years, uh, wrapped in cosmoline and paper, and you know, stored in any kind of reasonable conditions. The the crate could probably rot to where you could open it just by smacking it with your hand, and it would fall apart from it, and the rifle would be protected. That's why they did it. You need to get it off. So degreaser and Birchwood Casey uh, to clean your metallic parts. Stock's a different story. The stock, you know, if you use some kind of harsh things on the stock, and a lot of these wood stock weapons, like the Mosin the Gods and the, 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 the uh, Mausers and the SKs, the wood is literally soaked through with cosmoline. They, they basically dunk the entire freaking weapon into these, these cosmoline vats and allow the stuff to gel on it. And what will happen is you can clean the stock really, really well. But especially things like SKs, as you start to heat up, you'll just have cosmoline weeping out of the wood. So you have to ask yourself a question. Do I just want to get the cosmoline out of this wood and leave it in its original finish, or do I want to refinish the weapon? If you want to refinish the weapon, you can strip it using Easy Off Oven Cleaner. Please do this outside. It will strip everything from the stock, just about. There still may be cosmoline in there. Uh, there's a good website called surplusrifle.com. I'll put a link in today's show notes that gives some really good instructions on how to use oven cleaner to, to and, and refinish a stock. This is not refinishing a stock to bubba eyes it and make it look all shiny. This is to try to make it look like it originally did. It is, it's a restoration uh, that, that people do with very light sanding because of some of the wood ends standing up and things like that and resealing it eventually with something like uh, linseed oil. And if it fades the wood too much when you do it, maybe using some uh, dark walnut stand or something like that. That's one way to do it. Let's say you want to try to preserve it originally. You don't want to sand anything. You don't want to strip anything. You just want the cosmoline out of it. Heat is how you do this. The best way I know to do it is to basically make a mini greenhouse for your wood. I know that sounds crazy, but it's what you do. What you want to do is, and you can do this with a black bag or a clear bag. I found both work well. I think the black maybe works better because it builds up more heat in the summertime. You want to take a couple blocks of wood and maybe a, a, a tray or something underneath it to collect the, the dripping cosmoline so it doesn't end up all in the bag and just getting all over everything when you try to open it. And you want to create some kind of a stand using bricks or, or wood or something for your wood components of your stock, your forend, what have you. And then you want to fill that with air and close the sides and leave it sit in the sun. And what will happen is the sun comes up and just heats up the air inside that bag. And that cosmoline just starts weeping out of the wood. And it could take weeks to do this. I've heard of people also doing it by basically making an enclosure and putting it like if you have an older home that has uh, cast iron radiators in the wintertime that produce heat. I've even heard of people uh, baking cosmoline out in an oven if the components are small enough to fit in an oven on warm. I don't feel comfortable with that. Cosmoline is flammable. 
Uh, it's probably safe on low temperatures, but I'm telling you, I wouldn't do it. I've done several SKs and several Nagants by simply putting them out in the sun, uh, the, the wood portions only, and using kind of the tent approach. It's the best one that I've found. I've also, when I've done refinishing, where I do strip the stocks with uh, Easy Off, I've still, you know, heat treated the wood after that, and I've still seen a lot of Cosmoline come out. And especially the SKs, if you go out and you fire high rates of fire, you know, 10 rounds, and then drop another stripper clip and fire another 10 rounds, get 20 rounds out of there pretty quick, you'll find that all of that up around the forearm, uh, if you don't do this properly, will start weeping Cosmoline. It's not... A functional problem. It's not going to hurt the weapon, but it is convenient and it is some of the nastier stuff to get on yourself, to get on your clothing and things like that. So, great question. I think that everybody should consider restoring a surplus rifle or two. Uh, keeping it in its original form, but getting it ready to shoot and learning a lot about just tinkering and gunsmithing with them. There's a lot of stuff that's very affordable right now. You can still buy some old Mazins for under $100, and that's without a CNR. That's at a gun show. You'll still find a few of them out there for that price. They're pretty rough, but what do you care? You're just learning something new. So there's a lot of stuff like that out there. There's still some good deals on the old Turkish Mausers. Uh, there's still uh, some out there that you can buy without uh, doing a uh, uh, a form on, where they're completely no you know trace to you whatsoever. The old Turkish Mausers from the 1890s that were rebarreled in the 1930s, you can buy one of them basically by providing the seller with a copy of your driver's license. And it's no different than buying a, a black powder rifle or a BB gun at that point. Uh, so if you'd like one or two weapons that are completely off-grid, so to speak, that's one way to do it. Because um, I guess some of us do worry that someday they're going to make us register everything. They're classified as an antique, not a curo and relic, but an antique uh, because they're more, I guess, than a hundred years old. I think is the cutoff. So with uh, with that, let's see if we can cram one more question in here before we wrap up today's show. The last one today really isn't a question. It's something that I found myself um, on LouRockwell.com, and I, f I I read uh, LouRockwell.com all the time. And I think you should, too. And uh, it's called 50 Mind-Blowing Facts About America That Our Founding Fathers Would Never Have Believed. I'm going to read a few of them to you, and I'll put a link to it. I'd like to hear your comments on this. Maybe this would make a good forum thread uh, as well. Uh, maybe somebody wants to put that in the forum uh, without copying and pasting the article. I want to announce this as well while I have the opportunity. Recently, there's been some uh, bottom feeder internet uh, lawyer scums out there. They go around to websites and find places where people cut and pasted articles without permission. Then they go back to the source, they buy the copyright on the article, and they turn around and sue the site owner. We've been trying to clean the forum up. Some of you have been helping with that. So if you want to post anything about an article, uh, cut and paste no more than maybe the first two or three sentences and link out to the article. Let discussion take place by people going and reading the article. That'll keep us all from the bottom-feeding lawyer maggot scum out there. Um, but here's the 50 mind-blowing facts about America that our, fam uh, our founding fathers would never believe. In 2010, not only does, this is the number one, not only does the United States have a central bank, but it also runs our economy and issues all of our currency, the Federal Reserve has devalued the U.S. dollar by over 95% since 1913. And it has been used to create the biggest mountain of government debt in the history of the world. In other words, a dollar uh, in, uh, let's put it this way, a nickel today, um, no, a dollar in 1919 uh, bought what a nickel today buys. Uh, I got that all screwed up because this is just so 
mind-blowing here. They're right. To put this in perspective for you, if back in 1919 you held on to a dollar and you waited till today to suspend it, effectively you're now holding a nickel. That's just one fact. That's uh, pretty concerning. That's what the promise of stability from the Federal Reserve has brought us, a dollar being devalued to a nickel. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit has ruled that the U.S. government agents can legally sneak into your property in the middle of the night, place a secret GPS device on the bottom of your car, and keep track of you everywhere that you go. That doesn't mean they're doing it to everybody, but that means when it was contested that they did it to somebody, the court said they're allowed to do that. The 50 wealthiest members of Congress saw their collective fortunes increased by $85.1 million to $1.4 billion in 2009. Let's skip down before I read them all. In 2010, it takes the average unemployed American worker over eight months to find a job. Um, number 27, today Americans are losing their homes in staggering numbers. One out of every seven mortgages was delinquent or in foreclosure during the first quarter of 2010. Number 28, many of our leading scientists are now calling themselves transhumanists and are openly proclaiming that the future where men have fully merged with machines is inevitable. Number 40, millions upon millions of good-paying middle-class jobs are being shipped off to China and are never coming back. Meanwhile, U.S. politicians stand idly by doing nothing. Number 41, some analysts now believe China can become the largest economy in the world by the year 2020. I think they can do it sooner, by the way. Um, I don't know that I'm a leading economist, but I'm telling you, I think it'll be 2018 and China will be the number one economy in the world because we will fall as they're rising. According to one recent survey, 28% of all U.S. households have at least one person that is currently searching for a full-time job. Huh? Nice, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Oakland, California police chief, this is number 26, Anthony Batts says that due to severe budget cuts, there are a number of crimes that his department will simply not be able to respond to any longer. The crimes that Oakland police will no longer be responding to include grand theft, burglary, car wrecks, identity theft, and vandalism. So I guess if you want to spray paint crap in Oakland, go ahead. The cops don't have time to respond to it. Um, there's just a few more I want to read before I, I, I wrap up today. Uh, these couple should just really jar you and really worry you. Number 11, having one out of every eight Americans enrolled in the food stamps program is now considered the new normal. And Americans continue to drop in poverty at astounding numbers. One in eight Americans is now on food stamps. One in eight. Oh my God. I have to say it again. I'm sorry. One in eight of us are on food stamps. One out of every six Americans is now being served by at least one government anti-poverty program. One in six Americans are on some form of welfare. One in six. A family of four today, number 13, actually has difficulty surviving on an income of $50,000 a year in America in 2010. I absolutely believe that, especially depending on where you live. There are places where a family of four on 50k a year can do okay. And there are places where they can't even buy a house. Um, I'll put a link to all of these uh, 50 facts from LouRockwell.com in today's show notes. But the reason that I brought these up today is not just to demotivate you on a Monday, but to motivate you on a Monday. When I talked about China, 
basically taking over as the economic superpower in their endgame. At least some of you probably thought, ah, oh, Jack's got a little bit of foil hat going on today. Can you, can you read what China is doing and what everybody's saying about China economically? And then can you look at what's happening in America and really doubt that we are in for some serious economic problems that what we're seeing so far doesn't even begin to scratch the surface when one in eight of us can't feed ourselves? Never mind the nation can't feed itself as a net food importer. But one in eight of us cannot feed ourselves and keep our family fed without help from the government. How many of those one in eight are going to vote for anything that reduces the size, scope, and power of government? One in six are now on a form of welfare. You know, our founding, father, founding fathers, fathers would not believe this. They really wouldn't. Um, I think our founding fathers would be organizing Revolution 2 right now if they were still around. That's not practical today. We need the individual revolution today. You need to take back your sovereignty and you need to do it now because no one's going to do it for you. You need to get out of debt and you need to do it now because no one's going to do it for you. You need to learn how to feed yourself and you need to learn how to do it now because nobody's going to do it for you. I know sometimes I'm really, really optimistic and I'm still being optimistic. It may be hard to tell, but I am. Because I believe that you can do everything that I'm saying. But I'm also telling you, for those that don't, it is going to be a hard, hard time. This nation's going to see poverty like we've never seen before. Or at least we haven't seen in any of our lifetimes. The last people that dealt with something like the Great Depression are currently dying off, and we're not listening to them. We're not learning from them. We're not paying attention to them. And most of them are still around. At this point, most of them were children. The people that were in their 40s trying to raise a family in 1930, you have to think about this. If you were 40 years old in 1935, you'd be what? About 105 years old today. We don't have a lot of 105 years olds out there. And we're so arrogant as a people, we don't really pay much attention to them. So the last of that generation that was really not even the young man trying to earn a living and get a family started, but was actually in the middle of of running a family, are dead. They're gone, and their voices are lost. But they're not really lost. I say this all the time. Our forefathers, the people that came before us just one, two generations ago, they're screaming to us. They're screaming to us to stop the madness. And they're screaming to us to learn to be self-sufficient and self-reliant. Let this stuff motivate you. If you do one thing today, if you do one thing out of this show, please go to the show notes. Click on the link to this Lou Rockwell article. Read these 50 facts and let that fuel your motivation. I think it's important. I didn't read them all because I didn't want to take too much time on the air doing it. And I didn't want to depress people too much. But I think in your own time and in your own way, you need to read each one. And anyone you doubt, I want you to click on the links that go to the verification that show you where it was reported that it happened. And I want you to realize that they're all true. These 50 things are facts. They are not opinions. Now, you can have a different opinion about what it actually means going forward, but you can't debate the fact that these things occurred. The things that our government has done from taking liberties, the things that our government has done from destroying the economy, and the overall trends economically in our nation and in our world, they're real. We have to deal with them, and we have to deal with them now. The good news is we have time. We can see what's coming, and we can prepare. Please do that. It's the most important thing that you can do for yourself and your family. And remember, like I said earlier today, if we lose the family, we've lost everything. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.